The presenting sponsor of EcoCheck with the IDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is a volunteer-run, nonprofit 501c3 research and human services charitable organization providing a public research repository and studies the effects of all role-playing game formats, accessibility, and inclusiveness considerations for role-playing gamers, and the potential for RPGs to help various populations achieve their educational, recreational, or therapeutic goals. The founder of RPG Research is Hawk Robinson, and he has been wonderfully supportive of my creative efforts over the years, and previously appeared as a guest on EgoCheck back in January 2017 on Episode 7. So go back in time and check out our conversation about all the great work he's doing. Donations to RPG Research directly support research and community programs to help people improve lives. And more information for these programs can be found at rpgresearch.com slash donate. And before we get started today, I wanted to pass along another note that Limitless Adventures and I are still selling no assembly required for $5. And every penny of that $5 goes to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The book is a PDF of 10 highly detailed uh, monster characters that are available for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. It has wonderful art, a lot of backstory, and will be a great resource for your game. And again, every penny of that $5 goes to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can find No Assembly Required available for purchase through Limitless Adventures. And to find that, that is limitless-adventures.com backslash no-assembly-required. And you could also check out limitlessadventures.com for a lot of other great 5th edition materials. And if you scroll down through the page, you'll see the no assembly required icon to click on it for more information and the availability of the PDF for $5. So check that out and you're supporting a great cause. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Kyle Newman, one of the authors of Art and Arcana, our visual history. You may also know him as the director of Fanboys. He's a writer, he's a director, a father, husband. He's got a lot of stuff going on. Kyle, welcome to the show. Wow, thank you for having me on, Michael. It's a yeah. pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you. So just diving right in. Art and Arcana, A Visual History of Dungeons & Dragons. It's a magnificent book. I wrote a review about it back in October and just gushed about it for about 3,000 words. I'm wondering, you know, you've been on which seems to be like a pretty whirlwind tour promoting the book. And yeah. just curious from your point of view, what, what's been the most interesting thing about the reception thus far? I just think diving into this community, I'm new to it, you know, publicly, it's been so welcoming and wonderful and everybody has been just fun. It's a really fun community, Dungeons and Dragons and getting to know everyone that works on the brand and getting to meet all these fans and going around the country, getting to expose the book to people. I've been working on it in seclusion for <laughs> two years. It's all been really exciting and really encouraging and very rewarding. I think it, it, if you make something for people that you care about uh, and then you see them take to it and care about it, you know, that's that's what we, we wanted to do. And that's what I, I've been feeling. So it's 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 a great experience. 
I'm wondering about the origin story of Art and Arcana because it's such a massive book and it's quite in depth on so many different topics of D and D. And when was the first time you were exposed to this idea or got involved? So I'd gotten back into playing role playing games after my first son was born about five years ago. And I had taken a 10 or 12 year break and was just getting really busy professionally. But once I had more time and I was spending that time at home, I started to have more game nights and have people over. And so it was really nostalgic step backwards into all these games I used to play. I grew up playing things like the Ninja Turtles role-playing game, the Star Wars West End game, Dragons, Car Wars, uh, GURP Supers. There was a whole bunch of stuff I used to be really into. And I, I started playing Star Wars RPG, the new Fantasy Flight Games one. And my game master was Sam Whitworth, the actor from Star Wars, who voices Darth Maul and many more. Nice. And he had to put the game on hiatus for a bit because he was going to do some work. So we, uh, I wanted to keep playing role-playing games, but I didn't want to do Star Wars. So I got into Dungeons & Dragons. I said, let me see what this fifth edition is all about. It's getting some great reviews. Let's see if I can get a group together. Within an hour after posting something on Facebook, I had a group. And nice. two weeks, I was just so back-hooked. It was unbelievable. I started looking for this for the book on the history of the game or on the history of the art, and there was nothing. There was just a big void. And over the next few months, I, I picked up the book uh, by Michael Whitworth called Empire of Imagination. It's a bio about Gary Gygax, a very cinematic telling of early days of D&D and TSR. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it was Sam's brother, my uh, Star Wars game master. And I knew him through Facebook and stuff. So I reached out and said, Hey, do you have any interest in doing a book on the history of the game or pointing me in the right direction? Because I hadn't done anything in publishing before. Okay. And he was super enthused. He's like, you know what? There is something here. There's something big here. Let's, let's do this. And we solicited, uh, John Peterson, who's the foremost expert in RPG history, I think. And John immediately joined the team as well. And he was so pumped. And uh, he has a book called Playing at the World, which is, it's just fantastic. It's dense, mm-hmm. it's rich, and it's awesome. So if you're a fan of like the history of gaming and the evolution of it and wargaming up through RPGs and D&D, like it is, it's the book. So he joins the team, and then Sam said, how do you even know my brother? You're doing a book with my brother, you jerk? <laughs> I want to do the book too. So we're like, of course. So Sam joined the team, and we felt we had a pretty complete, balanced party, but we still didn't know exactly what the book was going to be. So... Uh, we didn't just want to do a straight art book. We want to do something with the commentary. You know, there's something that really dug deep and looked at why choices were made. Why did things look the way they did? Why did it evolve the way it did? Why were there additions? What, what, uh, brought about these changes and evolutions in the game? So we got together in Los Angeles at my house and everybody had compiled images and ideas that they thought were important to this visual history. And we really honed in on this idea that it's not just art from the game. Visual history encompasses dice, maps, ephemera, products, clothing, belt buckles, animation cells, character sheets. Um, it's everything that letters between them, product catalogs, advertisements. It's, it's everything that painted a picture of what the brand was, the psychology of the brand that gave it a full portrait and also felt like a time machine back up through the years. Yeah, and that really comes across when you're just paging through the book or if you go through it page by page and read everything. It's so dense. The, the book is incredibly dense with 
it, it seems like there was so much effort and energy put into the design of each page, all the different materials, the images, uh, the language right. that's used. And it's, uh, I think, you know, when I was reviewing the book, it's like you could just flip to any page and get lost in it for five minutes, just looking at, you know, certainly the incredible art, but the way that the art is used to tell the story of this game, the life history of this game is incredibly impressive. And for me, someone who I picked up the game in, in the 80s uh, with some friends and played for a while, then during kind of high school, college, lost touch with it came back in fourth edition. So there was a lot of holes in the history for me that reading the book was super educational. It was just fascinating to go through. And then the sections where I was more familiar, like fifth edition and fourth edition, which I have a soft spot in my heart for, to see those chapters given the same amount of care that the early days are given was just felt really rewarding for me as a fan. It doesn't feel like anything was left out. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, because it was a, it, obviously there's there's a lot to be told in those very early days. It's the first time they're coming up with beholders and mind flayers and they're coming up with products like monster manuals and stuff. So you have to do that justice. And then later on, you've been through this thing that, yes, every edition has these types of books. So we didn't want it to feel like that got less of a treatment. It The beginning gets a little extra just because of the sure. nature of it. And it's birth there. But, yeah, we wanted to do justice to each edition, at least get into the reasons why they were created and why they endured or didn't. So I thought this is an important story in fourth edition, which we we get into. And and I think it has to do with brand identity. And there's a lot of people that love fourth edition. But I think the reasons why fifth edition work, you know, are also fascinating, too. So there's. There's just some good stories in this book, and it's not just pictures. That's the important thing. It's a history with visuals, not really just a visual history. I think that's uh, what I really wanted it to be, and I think the team was really in agreement on that uh, as we went along. So we had a good synonymous voice, and yeah, I think um, it's hard because it's such a macro look at this brand, and you want us to have the breathing room to go – do anecdotes and tell some of these important smaller stories about the people and, and and the anecdotes. So a lot was left on the cutting room floor, but it also forced us uh, to make it dense, like you said, to really pack it in uh, because we had one great shot at this. So it's good you you were feeling that because we we tried to put as much on every page and then rewrote the book visually after it was written and laid out. Um, graphically, we then want to look at each page and move stuff around and say, what's the best story being told here with images and words? And how can we heighten and refine that? And then did a whole other rewrite just in layout, you know, just rewriting the text around how it's starting to map out. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm wondering, you mentioned how this sort of Voltron of authors came together to put together this book. And I'm wondering how were topics divvy up? How, how was the whole book organized? I imagine something this massive of an undertaking had to go through various outlines. I'm imagining yes. like these boards that have all kinds of pictures and lines connecting them. Like what, what did that look like? It wasn't as much like that uh, with a big board up on the wall. What we did was we had generated a, a spine, which was like a chronology. Okay. And within that spine, um, were all the things, it was like a Christmas tree, and then there was all the things we were going to put on the Christmas tree, um, all the subjects we were going to branch out into. And from there, 
um, having been in agreement on that, the, the broad strokes of it, it was easy for us to divvy up parts and jump around and then share them and then rewrite them because we all had one more or less definitive version of what should be in the book before we started in terms of content, in terms of how deep we could go for page count. So we all wrote in different sections. So it's not like one person did um, this to this per se. I mean, we did some of that, but then everyone would then go in and say, hey, we don't need this, or how about this, or why don't we move this to this, and I'll work it into this section, and you could put this in here. So there's a lot of uh, flexibility. It was very organic. So And the text is it's funny. Like there's parts of the book that are sort of laugh out loud funny. I, and I encourage folks who do have the book who maybe has a, you know got it for the art and all the images, you know, reading through the history of it is it's just well done. And it's humorous. Okay. It's like a good time to read. And there's there's shots taken in the book, which I enjoyed. There's some kind of jokes that are made that are that are really funny. And I think on Twitter, I think it was John Peterson who chimed in, or you guys were kind of joking about who wrote what little shot in there. <laughs> so it's it's really a, a wonderful text to look at. Which part was that that you were talking about? So the about the it was like a I think the TSR twenty years and something about the wizard logo being used in the wrong year, or they oh okay they printed that off. Yes, okay. Yeah, there was, um, yeah, we, and you have to go through these layers of just back checking and verifying and vetting and then go through it again to make sure when you move stuff around, something didn't get lost or the wrong year is not attributed to an image. It was a puzzle. Yeah. And then once you have everybody working on everybody's things, it's easy to like, you can even like make a little mistake or tweak something that shouldn't have been and then you don't, you're not tracking it, but. It was pretty well organized. I mean, that's the thing. It had to be extremely organized and passed around in in a progression. So nobody, two people weren't working on it in rewrites at the same time. It was all very delineated. And it does seem like there was, certainly space is a consideration, uh, but the book seems to be lavish. It's it weighs over five pounds. The the pages feel very sturdy. I mean, page and throw, it doesn't feel like you're going to break the book in any way. It just seems like it was created to last, to be sturdy. And I'm, I'm wondering how much of that was a factor for you guys as a team, like wanting the book to not only have good content and look good, but sort of stand the test of time. Oh, we wanted this to be like a our goal was, you know, hopefully we could make something definitive that would that would stand the test of time. Something that people could go back to and say, this is a really great chronicle, everything up through this point, and hopefully we could update it. Um, so we wanted it to have that weight. And by doing that, we, we knew it was going to be a bigger book and a heavier book to physically have the weight as well as the, the, the emotional and impact weight. And um, I think... Our publisher was wonderful because we didn't, we were only conscripted to do so many words and so many images and we pushed and pushed and added many more and doubled the images and nice. just went above and beyond in terms of licensing and, and finding these, these important pieces of obscure, forgotten memorabilia and art to, to craft into this. So. You know, we were pretty tireless. It was an archaeological process is what we always say. And, and John Peterson was very much spearheading the the art archaeology, the archaeology. 
of it um, in terms of tracking down stuff. And Wizards was so great and forthcoming with their whole uh, treasure trove of images, everything post the Wizards acquisition uh, 99 was very accessible and was well cataloged so we could dive into it. And, um, but the earlier stuff, a lot of it was, had been pieced off and sold off and some of it was forgotten and had to track down who even had what and would they part with it to let us put it in the book. And we also wanted to go back and shoot things that you think you've seen, but shoot them in their native form or get the best possible image taken last year of something that's, you know, you've seen a Google, Google image of it, but that's like so low res compared to what it looks like. And we want to see the brush strokes and the choices the artist made and on color and, and design without trade dress and logos and all of that. So, and sometimes you have to go rephotograph the product to find the best one. Sometimes you want to find like the God copy of something. And we have, you know, one of them's Gary's copy with his writing on it. It's like his own personal copy of it. So these are the copies that I think are cool to see in there, the actual product. Yeah, and what became, you talked about archaeology, and I, I use that in my review, it does feel like this was a labor of love to put all this together. What what became, quote-unquote, the grail for the team to try to find like something you either heard about or knew needed to be in the book, but you just couldn't find right away? We really were after the player's handbook cover, the original player's handbook cover. So okay. that was like the quest. Um, and I can't get into all the details on it, but right after the book was done and submitted, we still didn't have it and it was ready to go to printer and it had been laid out and we'd gone through the whole thing. And then it came across our Dropbox, and, um, we were like this stop the press. This has to go in the book. So we reorganized up and made room. Cause our goal initially was to get those five wonderful paintings in their native form, the player's handbook, the dungeon master's guide, the monster manual, the fiend folio to really present them in their full, like a two page spread and give them, um, give just endless faith to the native art, um, to see them in their glory. So we ended up getting all five and putting them in there. So that was like the, uh, awesome ending on the, on the whole process, getting that player book. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. And this, the size of the images, like there's a watercolor of Keep on the Borderlands, which I played so often when I was younger. Oh yeah, just seeing an early version of that, and it's just it's it's sort of mind blowing. <laughs> it takes you back. Yeah, that's the thing. It's and uh, I said at one point on our tour, I was like, you know, it's like a yearbook too, because we're just we're profiling the people who did it. We're giving a nod to all these guys who created the art and put their craft and their their heart into it, which. A lot of times you remember the product, but you don't remember the people. So we wanted to have that quality, too. And going back, some of the forgotten stories of the early artists was important to shed light on, on like Tracy Lash and Cookie Corey and all these people who you don't really know their names, but they created some of these important um, definitive monsters that and their looks have endured. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, this topic was something I wanted to touch base with you, and you mentioned nostalgia as well of... You know, you've been involved in several different fandoms now, directing fanboys. I guess that's close to 10 years ago now. Jeez. Yeah. Time goes by quick. Yeah. In this, this book, I wonder if there was ever a tension for you and the creative team of how to focus or channel that nostalgia. Because I think from my role as a psychologist, I think sometimes there's two different ways that nostalgia can go. It can be something you're yearning for, that you want to go backwards 
or something that you're just reflecting upon and celebrating. And I wonder if that was ever a tension point for the creative team of how to word things, how to present material from early editions of the game compared to what's happening now. Very much so. We didn't want to be blinded by it, but we did want to pay tribute to its importance. And one of the reasons why the game is endured is because these early editions did have this dynamic lasting effect on people's imaginations and psyches. That's why they stuck with the game, because a lot of people try to relive it. And that's why the current iteration of the game, fifth edition, it didn't start with a brand new realm. You know, they, they went to the Forgotten Realms, which was, you know, printed in 1987, and that became the basis of it. And all these stories and a lot of the key characters and, and villains are all born of the old. And Waterdeep wasn't invented for Dragon Heist Waterdeep. You know, this is an old city. Uh, the stuff in Storm King's Thunder is pulled from, in, you know, homage to other stuff. The Curse of Strahd, you know, it goes back to all the, the, the Ravenloft stuff. It's in the, it's, um, and what they're doing in Undermountain, which just came out, is, you know, uh, it's a famous old dungeon and Tomb of Annihilation is a, a riff on the, you know, modern riff on the Tomb of Horrors. And then Yawning Portal had, like, re... They redid all these old classic dungeons. So everything was a look back. My first game playing 5th edition, I, I did Princes of the Apocalypse, which was going back to Elemental Evil and Village of Hamlet. So I think it's um, it's part of it, but it's not reductive, and it's not just like, let's redo it our way, like a, a Hollywood remake. They actually incorporate some of the history and stories into these things. So if it's in timeline, like what they're doing with Halaster and Mad Mage, uh, they're not like getting rid of all the old stuff. It actually like works into a greater narrative. Um, but all this old stuff is then important. So it's not just important because it had pure nostalgic value. They're taking it on a narrative and story level as well. So, that philosophy, I, I think, is is very healthy and still forward thinking. And so while a lot of this book is looking backwards and it's tripped down memory lane, it still reminds you of where the game, what the potentials of the current game is, where where it's going and why it keeps enduring and working, because so much of it inspires you to use your imagination to to do things. You know, you talk about Star Wars. Well, Star Wars has one definitive narrative. Everybody knows it's like the myth of Darth Vader. You know, they have like a, a specific story. But if you talk about a Sarak, everyone's had a different story interacting with a Sarak. Sure. Two Did you beat him? Did he beat you? Like there's, that's, there's a difference there. Um, so, you know, Star Wars is much more in that oral tradition of, Homer, you know, and the classics, which I love. I think it's just like foundational mythic storytelling, fairy tale. And Dungeons and Dragons, it's like this wonderful tool for you to go create your own heroes and stories yeah. and, and, and riff off those ones too. And maybe you're going to tap in subconsciously to the Joseph Campbell myth and all that stuff. Maybe you won't, maybe you're anti-heroes, you know, it's just, it, there's a lot of different ways it can go, but a lot of the games, they give you the framework to go, to go do that. And what are those tropes and what are those, what are the building blocks of, of narrative storytelling that, that you can then use and incorporate into your little collaborative storytelling group. And it's interesting because I, you know, certainly being a huge fan of star Wars, 
a fan of D&D throughout my life and being very much, I don't know, I imagine those Venn diagrams overlap quite a bit of fan bases. Um, yes, and, I think they But at the same time, I think there are differences. And one of the things that, you know, just because there are different forms of, inter- of entertainment, the and I think this fared out a little bit in recent years of some fans of Star Wars being quite rigid with their relationship with that property versus, and I know there's edition wars and all that stuff, and I want to get into that, but I, I think, like you mentioned, D&D, you have a module, you play through it, every group that plays through it experiences it in a different way, and that's just baked into the process, whereas we all saw A New Hope Empire and Jedi and probably all saw those a hundred times and you have the same experiences, so it, it does seem like you've noticed that difference in the fan bases a little bit. Yeah, because every there's a there's a moment like I am your father. You know, it's dark, it changes everything, it's dramatic, it's a cliffhanger. Everyone experienced that together. That is a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. But those moments don't necessarily happen all the same. There's some benchmarks in those stories that you can all refer to, but that doesn't happen the same in 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 D&D when you play it and you get together. It just it's a different type of scale. What I do like what they're doing now is their books are coming out and they're like events. It's not like they're just pumping out modules as much as they can and competing against themselves like they used to. Mm-hmm. Dragon Heist is, is, it's an event, you know, like hashtag, you know, Dragon Heist and you see all these people are streaming it at the same time and you can see all the different ways it's being interpreted and played. So collectively it's a, it's a moment, but there's so many different ways to, to interpret that text and, and play through it. So, but they are creating like a moment collectively. And that's, that I think is, is cool. And it's kind of made their modules or adventures like events, you know, cultural events, which are really fun. Cause I love seeing all the ways different peoples are different groups are playing them. Yeah. And getting back to, to the art and arcana book, you, you, you know, we've been talking about nostalgia quite a bit and I was going through a half price books a few weeks ago and I stumbled across I think, what was the name of the title? So it was The Art of Dungeons and Dragons Fantasy Game. And it was a book from 1985. So I found that and it was in some ways a similar idea of looking backwards and say, here's some of the art that has influenced the game. It was certainly, it was a paperback book. It was, it was much simpler. Didn't have nearly as much uh, story and detail behind it. And I imagine Art and Arcana could have been an update of that. But you've mentioned several times that it, the visual history, it was used to detail sort of the how and why that D&D has traveled over the past you know, 30, 40 years. And I found it to be just incredibly educational. And it's really stressed in the book that if you just look at the visuals of the game, it really tells you a lot about the game itself and how it developed and how it interplayed with things like the Satanic Panic in the 80s and that yeah. it turned into more of a miniatures game and then how it was competing with stuff like uh, World of Warcraft and it's just, I mean, looking backwards and looking at it through that perspective, it's like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. But at the time, I don't know if it was it that obvious to folks who were playing all, all those years. I don't, I don't know. It wasn't totally obvious to us either when we started the process. I mean, some of it, you, you just were like, oh, yeah, I knew that subconsciously. But nobody had ever drawn that that explicitly. Or by, by putting two images next to each other and comparing them, you could really look at the psychology of the brand in advertising. Mm-hmm. At one point, you know, they're shaming 
uh, people who play World of Warcraft and sit inside, and they're saying D&D's the game where everyone gets together. And then a year or two later, they're selling their version of Warcraft. And then then the, the ad, right after that, they're telling you, you know, the only thing good about your, your books is you can use it as a mouse pad, you know? Right. So there's... And that's all in the short span of like two or three years. So you can see what they're they're trying to find their identity. And these type of ads, when you look at them all next year, you're like, wow, they're really trying to figure out what's going on here. They're really trying to make it work. And here's a game, Warcraft, which is basically like D&D. And all these people are playing it, and they don't even realize they're playing D&D. Some do, but some don't. Um, and the reason why the game's working right now is because people are – Realizing, oh, that's what D and D is. I've been playing it my whole life. Right. I've been playing all these other games that are D and D, from Zelda to Final Fantasy, Warcraft. Or I'm watching it in Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. It's, it's different, but it's not like some strange alien thing. They're watching these shows of fantasy and magic and conflict, and they're like, oh, oh, I am into this stuff. You know, it's cool. It's not something that was. It's not taboo like it was back in the 70s or misunderstood some of these concepts like leveling up and open-ended games and experience points and characters with backstories. And that was that was transformative. That was disruptive back in the day. People couldn't comprehend what that was. Now we take it for granted. But, yeah, all those concepts are just embedded in, in modern gaming. So people are already playing those things. And they're like, oh, that's cool. I know that. It's similar to this, you know. Um, so it's not foreign and the entry point is so much easier now for people. You can just watch a five minute YouTube video and you go, Oh, that's what D and D is. Okay. You just get together with friends and tell a story and have fun. Okay. Uh, it's used to be so daunting and maligned and just was, you know, just riddled with just negative nerd connotations. And it's just not that, I mean, it can be that, but it doesn't, it's not all it is. That's what's cool about it. I think that's why it's finding its moment because people are like, Oh, I already like all this stuff. Let's play D and D. There's definitely been more acceptance. There's no doubt about that. There's just more like ways to experience the game. Streaming is such a big deal uh, for folks. You can, you know, watch people play. There's, it's been on numerous shows and you mentioned some of the temple shows that are out there, but it's kind of like this visual D and D game of Thrones, things like that. We're talking about this kind of how sort of 3, 3.5 transitioned into 4th edition, and that was a really fascinating part of the book. And the 4th edition chapter is called Maze. And the other thing I wanted to mention, or, or maybe find out about, so each chapter in the book is the name of a spell from, yes. from D&D, which I love that mechanism of labeling this. Like, who came up with that? I think it was John and the spells are also the level that they were at in their inception, you know? So like chapter nine is wish, which is a ninth level spell and chapter one detect magic. That's a first level. So they correlate to level and the names are also um, applicable to the, the early incarnation of those spells. Yeah. So, and, and the fourth edition, like you mentioned, some of the, one of the more fascinating things about the book certainly the art, the you know covers, different illustrations from the manuals, um, but a lot of the ads is really descriptive of sort of the mentality of the folks running the game. And you mentioned that yeah. ad of it's really dark. It's this this person sitting alone in a room in their house. The lights are down. They have the glow of a computer screen on, and it has this somewhat mocking message of you know you should be with your friends playing D and D trying to take shots at the Warcraft players. And then 
you look a few pages later going into fourth edition, and I think it's either talked about or there's a comparison of the characters on the player's handbook for fourth edition compared to what the characters look like in like first or second edition. And you have these just basically these monsters carrying weapons and blasting spells who look indestructible. And these are first level characters. Like that was for, that was fourth edition. It just sort of increased the power level of everybody trying to match that World of Warcraft vibe. And that's what got me back into the game. Cause I was away from D and D for quite a while. I, been playing console games and whatnot. Heard some yeah. po- heard some podcasts of folks playing Fourth Edition. It sounded fun. Found a group, and then I've been sort of sucked in all over again for the last I don't know eight years or so. But I do again just appreciate that that Fourth Edition got some love in in the book. Yes, I wrote I wrote a lot of the Fourth Edition section, and you know there's a lot of fans of that, so we didn't want it to be uh, negative. But there is a reason why fourth wasn't necessarily connecting and why they did like a hundred thousand person play test to develop D and D next, which became fifth edition as we call it. And, you know, that's, and what they did was went back into every edition, including fourth and said, well, what's working in fourth? What's working in three, five? What's working in OD and D? Let's bring all the best elements forward and make this definitive fifth edition of the game that's simple and accessible. So, Elements of all of the prior editions are really baked into fifth, which I like. Yeah, it's been such a blast to you know play fifth edition when I have time. That's trying to find time is a factor these days. Yeah, but certainly going through the book, it does seem like it's a call and response back and forth. Like this trend happened, here's a response to it. Then that happened, here's a response to it. And the story of the game is is just laid out beautifully that way and then it goes right into the current time where we mentioned that acceptance it's sort of all over the place now that's being talked about on late night shows there's like major like hollywood celebrities just talking openly about playing D. that was not happening when i grew up <laughs> that was, no that was not happening and you're certainly a part of that world on multiple different levels what's it like to be a part of that of that scene I mean, it's fun for me. I'm just glad to be, be included. It's it's just wonderful people, and they're all really kind and and cool. So it's nice to get invited to play some stuff. I've gotten to play on their stream, the D and D stream, which was great at um, TwitchCon, and mm-hmm. you know, going to do some of the events and having our booth there at the stream of many eyes was was great. I mean, they just added added us in like we we're part of the family, which was which was. I mean, it's awesome. I I think you know the D and D community is just really strong, really vibrant, really healthy. It's growing. You feel like there's this positive energy around it where everyone's trying to. People are interested. They're like, what is it? I want to try. It sounds fun. There's so many people that come up to me and say that, or they're like discovering it, or they're open to it. And I think it's because of the people who are front and center with the brand and and who they're kind of bringing in and, and ingratiating into the community, the new players, and, and that energy, it all keeps it very positive. And, and something I've checked in with a few creators, just this general topic of, it sounds like you've been working on this book for, for years, is that fair to say? A couple years, yeah. And so now that it's it's out, it's been out there for you know over a month now, what is that kind of rise and fall of just energy level and excitement, enthusiasm, now that, not really looking back, but it's it's been out now for a bit, um, how do you re- recover from all of this? 
Well, we still have a few more um, promotional things coming up, which is exciting. It's a little bit of, you know, a lull. Uh, but the holidays are coming up, so it's still getting a lot of attention and holiday guides and things like that. So it doesn't feel like it's it stopped. Um, New York Times had a review recently, which was cool. Yeah, this this past Sunday was New York Times yeah. review, which is great. It was in it's in digital on Friday and it was in print on Sunday. And um, like I said, more holiday guides. A lot of people are giving it love and recommending it. It's gotten truly favorable. Reviews and then there's just more interest for events and stuff regarding the book, so that's great. And you know, it's it looks like it's turning into more opportunities to to write as well in this space. So we should have more news on, on that front. But there's obviously a lot more we want to do in this space, and we feel like this was one of what could be a series of art and arcana type books. Um, cool. But there's there's various things we're we're at work on, so that's exciting as well. So it doesn't feel like anything's just stopped. It's like oh, we're continuing. There's more good work to do. There's there's a coming soon there that, <laughs> uh, and I was curious about that because you had mentioned early on during our conversation that kind of coming to D and D a little bit as a like a new player, and now that you've very much dove into this field, it, it sounds like it's kind of motivating you to do more like you said, in this space? Yes, uh, on a lot of different levels. I just, I love Dungeons & Dragons. I love the power of it. I love the imagination. I love, I, I, I want to see more young people get into it. Uh, and for its merits right now, they don't even have to know the nostalgia of it. They're just going to like it for what it is right now, which is cool. And they'll discover all that stuff. Maybe they'll pick up this book and it'll, if you just got into it in the past year or two, Maybe you'll read this book and you'll flip through and go, oh, wow, this is where this came from. And it'll just add another layer to what you're already liking. Yeah, it's a, it's having a, a nice zeitgeist moment, which is cool, Dungeons & Dragons. So I'm happy to just keep doing more with them. It's just such a cool company up there, Wizards of the Coast, and putting out some of my favorite things on Earth. So it's awesome. Yeah, and as somebody who just spent a couple of years going, going through this archaeology dig of you know, Dungeons and Dragons and everything that's come before, you're probably in a good seat of having a sense of, given those call and responses that have happened over time, what's going to happen with the hobby next? Like, what are your thoughts about where it could go or where it should go? Well, I think there always will be new incarnations of the game. There will be a sixth edition, who knows when. Um, I think there'll be different ways to visualize the game, but... The game has endured for so long, and it's been re—I wouldn't even say it's reinvented because there's so many basic principles that carry forward. But um, it's not going to go anywhere. So it's going to be healthy when there's in five, ten years when there's a sixth edition, you know, etc. I think because it's the, you know, it's the preeminent open border game. Everyone talks about you know video games. You could do anything, but you can't. Somebody programmed them. There's a digital wall you're going to hit somewhere. You're only choosing from the options that was presented to you by someone who coded the game. So D&D is the true um, borderless infinite game. You can do and say and go anywhere your mind imagines. And that's what role-playing games, it's the power of them. And I think they'll find new ways to harness that technologically and I'm sure at some point there'll be some crazy synthesis between the two, where as you're imagining and saying it, things will be created. We're not there yet, but 
Uh, there will be more iterations of this game, I'm sure. Um, but right now, 5th edition is doing so well, I think it's just going to be further exploring of of this edition for the, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, there's, I mean, so much content just for 5th edition that, like, every time they come out with a new book, it's like, oh, man, I want to get into a campaign of that. And then it's six months later, and they come out with another one. It's like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. And just not having enough time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, with a we got a son that's about to turn two, so he's he's keeping us busy, not giving us a lot of free time these days. I wonder. So it is. You mentioned the holidays. I can't stress enough that if you're listening to the show, then you must be interested in D and D somewhat. If you don't have the book, go get it. Or if someone's looking to give you a Christmas gift or Hanukkah gift, go tell them like, hey, go get me this book. Uh, if you know somebody who is. Uh, a fan of D&D, I can't imagine anyone that'd be disappointed in getting this uh, as a present here in the coming weeks. So how can people do that? What's the best way for them to, to get the book? Well, we've got a couple of different editions. We have a standard edition, which you can find, you know, most bookstores and Amazon, penguinrandomhouse.com. You can find all the different sellers of the book in your area. We have a Barnes & Noble edition which is exclusive only to Barnes and Nobles in North America. It's uh, red bordered instead of black bordered. So it looks more like the classic red box. And uh, that has six, um, I believe six gatefold pullouts of additional art and imagery, which aren't in the standard or the special edition. And then we have the special edition, which is a Hydro 74 alternate cover. And he does all of D&D's, many of D&D's alternate covers. Uh, for their modules, and he um, uh, did the the clamshell and the and the book inside has a different cover and back, and but the the contents of the book are the same as the standard edition, but that one comes with posters, and and art, and also comes with a playable, uh, never before published Tomb of Horrors module from Origins 1975 predating the 1978 uh, published Tomb of Horrors. So you could play this precursory tournament uh, run version of the game, which is really cool. So that's the only time you can get that one and see that one with its early art. Excellent. And then if folks wanted to... Now, that's the other thing. Sorry. There's like... The special edition is $52 down from $125 on, on Amazon, which was... I mean, it's like astoundingly... It discounts. It's bananas, yeah. I, I saw that. I was like, oh man, I, I already have a copy, but that maybe I'll get that one too. Because <laughs> uh, I just have the regular, just uh, the regular edition. That's it's a great deal. I, that's, I mean, we jam so much into that um, that the price point is, it's it's pretty crazy. Because this is a book that, again, just to, I mean, hammer the point home that I don't, like, I realize I can pick this up in six months and six years and I'm still going to find things that are enjoyable. Yeah. And I wonder for you, if there's even, is there like a favorite segment or a favorite piece of, or a page that came together really well in your mind? I mean, I really, there's some wonderful spreads in it. I like on page 38, we feature this, this uh, old art called big eye and it was rumored to exist. And it was an abandoned concept, the initial concept for a mind flayer. And he's rooted to the ground like a roper. Yes, I'm looking and, at it now. Uh, it's really cool. So even the artist um, didn't recall drawing it, but we'd heard it existed, this ground uh, beholder, a.k.a. Big Eye. And you can see on the side column Gary's notes, and it says, 
don't use. Um, so it's just cool to see the evolution of these famous iconic monsters. And he said, give it a central eye and give it 10 eye stalks. But I don't think he mentioned that he wanted it floating. So stuff like that's really cool. Yeah. And a few pages before, I think the favorite thing that I, I mean, there's so many great moments in the book, but the one thing that I just wanted to applaud everybody involved in is the spread on page 24 through 25 where it compares the art to panels of uh, like Dr. Strange and Nick Fury, the comic book panels. And then underneath it has the art that was inspired. That's in the D and D it's just fabulous. It's this. Oh yeah. That's a strange that's a inspiration. Exploration of the swiping. Cause they would, uh, back, it was more acceptable to, to almost trace. And he gave some impossible deadlines to very young, you know, on unprofessional, non-professional artists, they were just teenagers. You know, he's like, Hey, will you draw me some pictures? And they would, you know, open up their Marvel comics and see a cool image of a guy on a horse and then do their own version of it. And that became some of the key art. Yeah. So that, that page is amazing. That's, and it's early on in the book. So it, it, again, it just sort of captures you right from the, right from the beginning. Plus there's letters, typewritten letters. I mean, there's so much stuff in here. Uh, so yeah, you mentioned all the different places where you can, can buy the book and uh yeah go out and get it folks it's awesome um, and have, if people want to chat with you or ask you a question as they're going through the book is there a way they can reach you on social media or something yes i am kyle underscore newman k-y-l-e underscore newman at instagram and also twitter and i'm on facebook i have a kyle newman fan page there our other authors are also on uh, Twitter. You can find Sam Whitwer, Michael Whitwer, and John Peterson. And all of them are super engaged and super excited about the book. So you can reach out to any of us on there. Yeah, just, well, thank you for all the time and effort and putting into Art and Arcana. It's wonderful. I, I spent a good week going through it and reviewing it and reading every word. And oh, that's great to hear. My, my wife is like, what are you doing downstairs? I was like, I'm reading this D&D art book. She's like, well, don't, isn't, yes. isn't it just pictures? I'm like, no, there's a lot more to it than that. And she was like, okay, well, yes. whatever. Yeah, there is a lot more to it. I want people to really understand that. This is, it's as much of a verbal written history as it is a visual history. It's just really underpinned by these images. So you can experience it multiple ways. Yeah, I think if you're a casual player or somebody who's played every module twice, you're still going to learn something from this book. Like it's just a, it's a wealth of great information. And um, congratulations that it exists. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate the time. And, you know, good luck with the rest of the tour for the book. And whatever's coming next, I'm excited to hear what that's going to be. Great. Well, thank you. Yep. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks again for your time. Take care. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.